Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Something else. Hello and welcome to an especially sweet episode, we hope, of Something Rhymes With Purple. This is a podcast all about words and language. And today we are indulging our sweet tooths. If you can say that, our sweet teeth, Giles. Do you have any? Do I have well, sweet I teeth? teeth? But do you have a sweet teeth? <laughs> no, I haven't. But it's <laughs> funny you should say that because people of my parents' generation often didn't have teeth. You know, people used to have <laughs> false teeth. A lot of people had false teeth, and you'd go to visit yeah. old people in, and and you'd find there was a sort of glass on the bedside, and rather sinister. Uh, floating around in the glass were false teeth. And when I was a little boy, you could go to the sweet shop and you could get false teeth made of sweets. Did you know that? Oh, kind of... good grief. I, I remember cigarettes. Do you remember those candy cigarettes that you could buy as well? I do. And they were the only cigarettes I've ever smoked. We thought we were very cool, didn't we? But we had a fantastic store, sadly, now languished, uh, called Woolies or Woolworths. And Woolworths had the biggest sweet section in most high streets. And it was a joy for me, Giles, to go to Woolworths whenever I did. It wasn't often enough because we had a, we did have a local sweet shop, which was brilliant. But do you remember Woolies? Did you used to go and, and visit their aisles? Woolies was one of the world's most famous stores. And there were Woolworths all over the country and indeed all over the world. But F.W. Woolworth was American and it was global. It was huge. And it failed ultimately because it ceased to be what we always thought it was. When I was a child, you could go in and things were inexpensive there. They were laid out on different counters. You could go to Woolies and you knew what you were going to get. And then as the years went by, it sort of lost its way and we weren't quite sure what it was doing. And eventually, it's extraordinary. It it was so huge and then it disappeared. But I remember Mm. those sweet counters. The pick and mix aisle. Oh, fantastic. Um, Yes. Where do we begin with the world of... Well, actually, could we begin, since we're supposed to be here talking about words and language, that's what Mm. Something Rides with Purple is all about, can we begin with the words sweet? Which, actually, we're global. I'm calling it a sweet, but I think Americans call it candy, don't they? (laughs) They do. Explain all that to us. They do, they do. So, well, the earliest records of what we refer to as sweets go back to ancient times. I mean, we're talking ancient Egyptians who would combine fruit and nuts with honey. So not quite the boiled or chewy sweets that we think of today, of course. And the noun was really first applied to a sweet food or drink or indeed a sweet dish like a pudding or a tart or 
cooked fruit and that kind of thing. And they were often called sweet meats if they were in lozenge or drop form. If you think of lemon drops, I love that word. It reminds me of somewhere over the rainbow where troubles melt like lemon drops Mm. away above the chimney tops. Anyway, they were called sweet meats. And in 1851, Henry Mayhew, who was really important chronicler of the slang of the London working classes, uh, essentially. He noted, we should do a whole episode on him because he was an amazing, amazing... Did he write a book called London Life and the London Poor? He he did. did. He did. And he speaks of something called rose acid, which he calls a transparent sweet. So I think he's talking about a boiled sweet then. So we're talking 1850s for some of our earliest records of what we today and, you know, indeed we're talking about when we get to the pick and mix counter here. Candy is actually from Middle English when it was called sugar candy. But ultimately it goes back to a Sanskrit word, kanda, meaning a fragment because these were little drops of sweet things or candied things indeed as well. So Sanskrit and Arabic have had quite a big influence when it comes to uh, language, at least, on on our sweet teeth. I still don't know whether to say our sweet tooth or our sweet teeth. So I'm going to go back to our, I'm going to go to our sweet teeth. I think it should be sweet tooth. You've got a sweet tooth. You've got um, a sweet tooth, but what about the plural? It's our sweet tooths. It's our sweet tooth. Okay. You, I, I, well, well, people can write in and argue, um, but I think it's a sweet tooth that you refer to. You don't say, I've got sweet teeth. I mean, that's meaning, oh, you've got charming teeth. They've been beautifully whitened and straightened. <laughs> oh, you've got really sweet teeth. No, no. A sweet tooth means you like sweet things. Yes. Shall I tell you a little bit about sugar? Because the history of sugar is quite interesting, really. It, it probably originated in New Guinea, but if you follow its migration routes, you can trace it to Southeast Asia and to India. And in 320-something BC, one of Alexander the Great's officers talked about seeing a kind of reed that grew near the River Indus. And he reported it as producing honey, but without bees. And that was indeed sugar. And sugar itself goes back to a Sanskrit word, sakara. And it sort of means grit in a way because of its gritty crystals. And when mm. sugar cane was introduced into Persia, the Sanskrit term was, was then borrowed there, a shaka. And they, the Persians, really spread sugar cane cultivation throughout the Arab word. And in Arabic, shaka became shuka. And ultimately, that's where it came. But the Crusaders also sampled sugar while they were in the Middle East. And one of them recorded with amazement how people living in Tripoli would suck onto a kind of cane to get its sweet flavour. And this intense sweetness was obviously something really, really new and it seduced everybody. And that created a demand for a really sweet product, which Venice really became a leading distributor of, uh, and so on and so on. So it's a little bit like salt. You know, the history of salt is so important mm. to the history of civilization, and, and sugar too, um, albeit slightly more innocently. Which were your favourite sweets? I need to know. I loved a gobstopper. When I was oh, a little too. boy, I loved a gobstopper, and one of my first relationships was with a girl called Susan. I don't know how old we were four, five at the time. But you could get gobstoppers that changed colour. The gobstopper was so-called because it was so big, it stopped your gob. And do you remember, they changed colours. They were different. It was pink and then there was green inside and then there was yellow. Do you remember that? You sucked them and the colours changed. I absolutely love them. Look, my cat has come to to join in as well. Um, I think we're talking about 
Gobstoppers, Bo. Yeah, well, I, Susan, I love them. Susan and I, we would each have a gobstopper and we would take it. And then when the colour, we'd keep checking the colour. And then when the colour began to change, we'd swap gobstoppers. Not totally oh hygienic. And not totally no. hygienic. So the gobstopper was mine and the aniseed ball. I loved gobstoppers and aniseed balls. Mm. They changed colour too. What were your two favourites? I liked fruit salads. Which, do you remember fruit salads? They were these sort of little stripy chews that were sold alongside blackjacks. Although I think blackjacks actually have a slightly shady past to them. I'm not sure their name was entirely innocent, but I did love those. And they were kind of um, uh, licorice flavour. So those I loved. I loved wine gums. Do you know why wine gums got their name or how they got their name? Please tell me. Well, apparently Charles Maynard, who invented them in the early 20th century, he wanted to distract drinkers from alcohol. And so he called them wine gums and labelled each one with a drink name as if it would sort of encourage abstinence. Whereas I was scoffing them as a seven-year-old, <laughs> far well, more happily than I was drinking yeah, port. R- well, we used to have wine gum and candid cigarette parties. Where we would, <laughs> <laughs> yes, we and we would take the wine gums and put them in little wine glasses. And we'd actually drink the you know, drink one at a time from the wine glass. And then while in the other hand, we'd hold these uh, cigarettes. And there were two types of cigarettes. There was the ones that were purely made of candy that had a little pink tip. Do you remember <gasps> the other pink... ones that, that, that kind of lit up? Do you remember well, those? They, I do. I don't think they were sweets. I think they just no, lit up. I think they, they glowed at the joke, bottom. Joke things, yeah. I think the ones that you could eat, ones that were made of candy and had a little kind of pink top. And there were other yeah. ones that were actually made of chocolate that had white oh. edible paper around them. Oh, I don't remember this. Okay. And there were some that actually had sort of like filter tips that had a coloured edge to the the paper. Oh, I'm, it's all coming back to me now. It's, I know. This is the thing. Honestly, it's like asking some of their favourite kids TV programme or their favourite word. Uh, did, sweets has the same effect. Did you like any boiled sweets? I liked a lemon sherbet. I think it was a lemon hard sherbet. edge. It was a sort yeah, of hard boiled sweet on the outside. And, yeah, it did. It, it was rough on the top of your mouth. Yes. Bonbons. Okay. I love bonbons. You can still get toffee bonbons, raspberry bonbons. Uh, bonbon is obviously a French word, meaning sweet. Bonbon. Sweet. Nice, nice. Yeah. But the boiled sweet in England is called hard candy in America, isn't it? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And it's boiled. Can you believe this? The sugar-based syrup that gives us boiled sweets and hard candy is boiled to 320 degrees Fahrenheit, 160 degrees centigrade to make it. Lollipops. Lollipops also quite often hard candy, aren't they? And I love that mm. because we think it goes back to the use of lolly for tongue. And it, and one of oh. your favourite words is lolly gagging, isn't it? It's if you're dawdling with your tongue hanging out. Um, and then the <laughs> pop bit is the, is the slap of your lips as you take the lollipop out. Oh my gosh. Um, which is great. I'm liking it. A lollipop. How old is the word lollipop then? Lollipop. Well, I think it was invented in the 1900s as a sweet, but I'm going to look this up because I have a feeling that lollipop itself is probably a little bit older, but let's have a look. 1784. Yeah. And it was then water ice on a stick. So it was a little bit like an ice cream. Yeah. Um, but you still can get, of course, ice lollies, which are ice lollipops. Of course. Same thing. And, and Australian English lollies are all sweets as far as I know. So I can't wait to get all the uh, emails in from the purple people on this one. What about fruit pastels? I loved those as well. Fruit pastels. I, now, look, if I give you a tube of wine gums or a tube of yes. fruit pastels, which of those would you go for the wine gums Green over the pastels? or lemon. Oh, of those two, uh, pastels probably. So would I, because they were softer. 
And they yeah. had a sugary coating on the outside, and yeah. then they sort of melted in your mouth. And I'm with you on the green and the yellow. So the green, I've can't, what the flavour of the green be? The yellow, I suppose, was lemony. Green was always lime. But pastel's got an interesting etymology because um, it's actually linked to bread, panis bread, because it meant a little loaf, a pastille, and then something that was kind of tiny and sort of almost loaf-shaped, which of course fruit pastels aren't because they're now completely round. But originally these pastilles were slightly lozenge-shaped and uh, sort of a bit longer and then curved at the edges. So that's where pastille comes from, French, obviously, pastels. So part of a really big family that gave us companion and company and a company, all, all from the idea of bread and people we eat bread with. As a child, at Christmas, yeah. I would often be given, only at Christmas, it was a special thing to look forward to, a candy cane. Oh, yes. White and red striped yes. candy cane. And yes. I one year was given one that was so too long, I could actually do a bit of dancing with it and swing it around as though I were Fred Astaire. And that, <laughs> it, was, it was too good to eat. Did you have There's a, a candy cane? a lovely story. Yeah, no. I still do have candy canes. There's a lovely story attached to them, which is that it goes back to the 17th century and a choir master at Cologne Cathedral in, in Germany who wanted his young singers to keep quiet during the ceremony, during the Christmas. I think it was a crash ceremony. And so he would hand out these sugar sticks um, so that they could suck on those quietly. And um, in honour of the occasion, apparently he bent them into shepherd's crooks to suit the, the Christmas story. Isn't that lovely? That's charming. You mentioned hmm. sucking on them. The phrase, suck it and see, do you think that relates to me and the gobstoppers? You know, you suck it and see what colour it turns out to be. I mean, what is the origin? You've oh, heard of that phrase, haven't you? Suck I it have. and see. Suck it and see. It's like the proof of the pudding, though, isn't it, really? 1951... And it's mentioned in another great lexicographer's work, Eric Partridge, who was a great oh. slang collector in the 20th century. He says it is a derisive catchphrase that was current in the 1890s. So he places it back to the 19th century. Wow. And then in 1968, we have the new scientists reporting that biologists prefer to employ the suck it and see approach adopted by Harold Wilson to politics rather than the impractical idealism of Michael Foote. That's interesting. Well, I loved sucking aniseed balls. I loved the colour that it made yeah. the, 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 you, the, your tongue that then became that sort of dark reddish colour and your lips too. In fact, I used to put aniseed balls, I used to rub them on my lips to give me lipstick. I remember now, it's all coming back. <laughs> you know where aniseed comes from, obviously? No, no idea. It's the seed of the anise plant, oh. which it's got a sweet flavour. It's similar to licorice or fennel, isn't it? And if you like aniseed, I'm guessing you like ouzo, which I really don't. I, well, I used I know to. You don't when, drink I, now, but. when I drank alcohol, I loved ouzo and I loved pernot, which is the oh. French equivalent. Um, yes, ouzo, not sort me of at all. pale whitish colour, pernot, mm. lovely yellow colour. And mm. I love the smell of all that. I adored that. Oh, that's interesting. And what about, um, and you can still get these, I know, because um, I have bought myself one not, not too long ago, a sherbet dip. Now, I did exactly the same thing and I was disappointed. A sherbet a habdab, I called it, but it is a sherbet dip. Oh, and dip. the habdabs. Yes, yes. Uh, that was a lollipop. The sherbet dip was the licorice stick and the sherbet abdab or whatever it was called, sherbet dabs, were, was a lollipop that you dipped in your sherbet. You're quite right. So the sherbet dip, was it a little sort of uh, piece of paper in which the sherbet, like a triangular shaped sherbet envelope? 
where the yes. sherbet was, and then you had yes. a licorice stick, which was hollow, so like a straw, a licorice straw, yes. and you could and you <laughs> suck it up. Suck up. Sherbet is just too sweet now, but that's another one that comes from Arabic, and it's actually a sibling of sorbet, sherbet and sorbet, closely related to syrup too, and they were all originally drinks, so very, very sweet, sweet drinks. Um, and in fact, they're based on the Arabic sariba, to drink. But that sort of sweet sherbet was originally used to make a fizzy fizzy drink in the 1850s. So a long heritage, that one. What about one of my favourite places in the world is Blackpool. Mm-hmm. Do you ever go to Blackpool? I haven't been to Blackpool for a very long time. I need to go again. You must go again. Christmas lights in Blackpool, if you're in Britain, between, well, it was the 3rd of September and the 3rd of January, the Blackpool illuminations, fantastic. And they're creating a kind of winter wonderland up there at the moment with sort of artificial snow and ice rinks. It's fantastic. Lovely. But, But during the summer, when it's hot and warm, you want to walk through Blackpool with, of course, a wonderful... Candy floss on a stick. Ah, candy floss. Do you like candy floss? Fun fairs everywhere. I do love candy floss. And it's candy, obviously, but the floss bit uh, is just a reference to that rough silk, which envelops the cocoon of the silkworm. So it's that kind of texture. And it's called cotton candy, isn't it? For the same reason in in the US. It's called cotton candy. Why is that a difference? Uh, Well, I think it's the idea of something flimsy and uh, almost like gossamer, this this texture of the candy that we're eating. So it's spun sugar, isn't it, essentially? Um, After the break, because it's time for a break, I need to tell you about licorice all sorts and find out which is your favourite. And I want to know about eye candy and how we've taken sweets into other areas. Oh, so (laughs) much to talk about. Okay, I'm going off to to suck a raspberry jujube. Back with you in a couple of minutes. A raspberry jujube. Oh, my goodness. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back to Something Rhymes with Purple, where I'm hoping to be educated on the raspberry jujube. <laughs> Are you not familiar I've been giggling with about the... it ever since. Uh, well, no. look, look up the word jujube. J-U-J-U-B-E. How do you spell it? Is it like uh, Well, I don't know what the origin of it is. My father was always talking about jujubes. I imagine, therefore, it's an Edwardian word. My okay. father was born in 1910 at the end of the Edwardian era, but obviously his parents were Edwardians. And he, as a child, loved a jujube. And that's J-U-J-U-B-E. So yes. what is the definition in the dictionary? And when's well, it, come it begins with an edible berry-like droop, so the fruit of various species of plants. Then in 1835, it's first recorded as a lozenge made of gum, arabic, gelatin, etc., flavoured with that fruit, or at least imitating that fruit. And I'm afraid to tell you that the last record we have of it in the OED is 1866, so it's not very current. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is this tells our listeners everything they need to know about me and my vocabulary. Maybe yeah. then we could do a special edition of Something Rhymes with Purple, where instead of you know we you can you can actually listen to Something Rhymes with Purple without the ads if you choose to by joining the Purple Club. But maybe we should have a, an extra place where you don't need to listen to me because everything I say is so out of date. I just That's terribly getting funny. my own back because you were mocking me for not knowing what on earth a jujube was. But anyway, oh, it's um, so funny. But I promise you, my father talked about jujubes all the time, and he. <laughs> We'd go into the shop and he'd say, well, we're looking at... This is why we had such difficulty when we were in Woolworths, because he'd be saying, oh, where are the raspberry jujubes? And they'd look at us completely confused. Well, there I you go. I think you might get something rather different these days. Anyway, <laughs> licorice all sorts I need to ask you about because I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with licorice. My mum used to have licorice toffees from Callard and Bowser, oh, which yes. were the nicest things on earth. They were sort of wrapped beautifully in this sort of carton with with this really delicious foil and I loved them but soft licorice not sure of it licorice itself comes from the Greek meaning sweet root nothing to do with liquor sweet root because it's made by evaporating the juice of the root of certain members of the pea family but there's a lovely story behind the invention well at least the inspiration behind licorice all sorts have you heard it before no well, you know, they're made by Bassets. They're called Bassets Licorice, all sorts, um, mm-hmm. over here anyway. We should explain, because I'm not sure how global they are. They're a sort of mix of sweets that are all flavoured licorice, obviously. And they're like sort of, a lot of them are like sandwiches. So you have different layers of what is kind of sweet. How would you describe it? It's a sort of sweet candy layers almost, but soft. And then just little strips of licorice in between. I'm not describing these very well, but they they sort of come in all shapes and flavours. Anyway, apparently a salesman or a sales rep uh, from the company Bassett's was visiting a client at a sweet shop and showing the client various samples of the licorice sweets that the company had made, all individual ones. The client was just a bit meh about them until the salesman gathered up his samples to leave and then dropped all of them and all over the floor was this wonderful, colourful assortment of sweets that the client decided, actually, do you know what? I quite like those. And that was supposed to be the inspiration behind the licorice all sorts. And I adore them. Well, how interesting, because I don't like them at all. I love the colour. I love the variety of the colour. I love the way we give them different names. I think there's a red one called Betty Bassett. There's Bertie Bassett, who's become a real character. Mm. Um, All that is great fun. But the taste for me is disappointing. I love pure licorice. A licorice stick okay. for me is fantastic. What about jelly babies? Do you like jelly babies? Oh, I love a jelly baby. These go back a, a long time and they're thought to be the work of an Austrian confectioner who worked for a Friars, I think they were called, of Lancashire. And he wanted to make a mould for jelly bears. At least that's what he was asked to do. But he thought that what he made actually looked more like newborn infants. But... The name they gave them, Giles, was just so ghoulish. Before they became known as Jelly Babies, they were called Unclaimed Babies. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that awful? Well, I mean, I thought you were going to say Sweet Fetus, um, but I think (laughs) Unclaimed Babies is pretty tragic too. Pretty awful. It was short-lived for no surprise there. And then Bassett's of Sheffield took over and, um, and they called them Jelly Babies, which is clearly much better. Does Turkish Delight come from Turkey? Turkish Delight is 
from Turkey. And the 19th century apparently saw an unknown British traveller discover a, a desert, what was essentially a dessert and bring it back. And he, it was traditionally called locum and he couldn't remember the name. This is the story. I mean, we're not sure how, how true it is. And he renamed it Turkish Delight. And Charles Dickens in Edwin Drood has a lovely, well, one of his characters has a fantastic alternative name for Turkish Delight, which is Lumps of Delight. Mm. Uh, and apparently one of the characters, and I don't know Edwin Drood, so I don't know the novel, but apparently one of them says, to what? The Lumps of Delight shop? And the answer is a Turkish sweetmeat, sir. So, um, yes, Turkish Delight. I Again, I prefer the sort of bastardised chocolate version to the highly perfumed original. I'm so sorry. I'm a, I'm a real Philistine when it comes you to Turkish Delight. You are with that, because the highly perfumed Fries version, Turkish Delight. if there's a little nut inside, it is particularly good. Um, oh, okay. Ah, uh, yes, you like, the cho- you like the chocolate-coated version. Yes. Do you, in do you know who I mean by Noel Card, the English playwright? Yes. Um, uh, genius. And he went to North Africa for holiday once, and um, he reported back to his friends in England that he was, I'm now in Ankara, but I am known as English Delight. <laughs> anyway, that's by the by. I love that. I love that. Let's turn to some of the phrases. I mean, we talked about sweet tooth, which I think should correctly be sweet tooth. It's clear what that means. Yes. No, I was only, it's just, I won't go over it again, but it was just that if you're talking about more than one person's sweet tooth, what do you say? And I'm not sure yeah. sweet tooth. It's a challenge. Sweet. Anyway, I agree. it's a challenge. Uh, that goes back to the 14th century, believe it Goodness. or not, as in a taste or liking for sweet things. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. There's also the sweet spot. The sweet spot, which is the point on a bat or a club or a racket when it makes the most effective contact with the ball. So it's a sport term originally recorded from the 1970s. But it's swept into other areas, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, when people say, oh, you hit the sweet spot. Yes, exactly. It's now used generally in an idiomatic sense for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that is sweet as in nice. That, a lot of these are to do with sweetness being something that people feel yes, or warm I think about. the sweet spot is a very precise spot, isn't it? Where yeah. it's that sort of absolute place where the ball hits or whatever. Um, toot sweet. Toot sweet. Toot sweet means uh, it's actually, uh, obviously, it's actually the French, isn't it? And it's nothing with sweets at all. It's sweet as in S-U-I, T-E. meaning immediately. T-E. Meaning following, toot sweet. yes. Yes, or following. Uh, Exactly. And you asked about Sugar Daddy, uh, an elderly man who lavishes gifts on a young woman. Uh, 1926 is the first reference we have of that. Uh, That's how we first met, isn't it, Susie? (laughs) (laughs) Speak for yourself. Um, We also have Sweet in Sweet F.A. Oh, yes. Sweet Fanny Adams. Yes, Sweet who Fanny was? Adams. Now, Fanny Adams was a real person. It's something to do with a murder, as I recall. Oh, horrible. It's very, very grisly. Yes, a poor child who was abducted and murdered and aboard ships. Sweet Fanny Adams became a horrible, dark euphemism for the kind of tinned rations that people had because her body, I think, was dismembered. It's all, it's all really grim. But of course, the Fanny Adams, the F.A. bit has now been substituted by another F.A. So Sweet F.A. somehow suits the Sweet Fanny Adams thing. But yeah, really dark history. Not very nice. Is that enough sweet talk for today? Should we move on to the correspondence? I think we should. Invite people. Do tell us your sweet stories. And also ask specific questions if you've got them about the names of of sweets, sweet meats in your part of the world. If you want to get in touch with us, it's purple at somethingelse.com, something without a G. Who have we heard from this week, Susie? Oh, we have a fantastic question. One of my favourites, actually, to date from Jenny Bell. Dear Susie and Giles, 
I'm so glad I found your podcast. I studied linguistics at university and love all things language related. My question is to do with the word butterfly. Why are the English, French, Spanish, Italian and German words for butterfly? Butterfly, papillon, mariposa, schmetterling, farfalla. So different. Thank you for all the brilliant discussions so far and please keep them coming. Well, what a don't polyglot. And her accent for each one completely differentiated. Gosh. Absolutely brilliant. Well, first of all, butterfly, I should say, Jenny. We're not completely sure why it's called butterfly. We don't think it is an inversion of flutterby, which is often the the sort of children's etymology. I I know. And we have talked about this, haven't we, Giles? I think there are two theories. One is that, which is not nearly as nice as flutterby, it's that the butterfly's poo is slightly buttery Mm. coloured, yellow Mm. coloured. And the other is that the sort of old wives tell that butterflies would fly in through an open window and land on any available butter. And that too is behind Schmetterling because Schmetten in German means cream and Ling is a sort of little diminutive. So that was due to a similar belief that butterflies eat milk products or that witches transform themselves into butterflies in order to steal cream and butter and things, which is um, lovely. So I love the way that these are wrapped up in superstition. Papillon is simply straight from the Latin papillo, meaning butterfly. But if you remember, Giles, that it's a sibling of pavilion because the tent or awning of a pavilion looks like giant butterflies' wings, which are kind of spread out, which is lovely. Fafale, that possibly does also look back to the Latin papilio via an old Italian dialect, papaglioni. So it may have travelled in, you know, through various dialects in Italy, through Catalan as well and through French, to end up from papaglioni to farfalle. Is there a pasta called farfalle? Yes, farfalle pasta, which is butterfly-shaped. Exactly right. Mariposa, the most accepted etymology says that it comes from the expression Mary alight, Mari posa, Mary alight, as in land. And you'll find that in children's songs and games. Mm-hmm. And you'll f- it's funny in Sardinian as well, apparently there are similar words, Maria vola, Maria fly. So it's a reference to the Virgin Mary. And again, wrapped up in all sorts of um, superstitions and religious beliefs, which I think is lovely. And finally, oh, I should just say that use of the Virgin Mary, that use of sort of personal names isn't unusual, uh, particularly in Romance languages. So you have, for example, a ladybird in Spanish, the Mariquita. You have a Marietta in Catalan. And on, you know, we have Renard in French, which is from a, from a French personal name. And we have the Robin. We've talked about this before. So those are the various etymologies that do have some threads, some common threads, which are sort of winding through them. But it's such a lovely question. And, you know, as we said, just brilliant accent. So thank you so much for that, Jenny. Wonderful. I'm sticking with a butterfly being an inversion of Flutterby. It's so good. It has to be true, even (laughs) though it isn't. Yeah, I, I understand exactly where you're coming from. We do have also another email, this one from Graham Marshall, which is also really interesting. And he's in Sydney, isn't he? Melbourne. Oh, he no, he was from Sydney, but I think he's in touch with us from Melbourne. Hi there. I was just remembering about the struggle of up-and-coming musicians, including the time The Clash spent a day gluing posters all over town for an upcoming gig. At the end of the day, they had nothing to eat except for the leftover glue which I assume was edible because it was made from flour and water. But I wondered if glue might then have a relationship to gluten, the protein in wheat. Graham from Sydney, supporter of the Purple podcast, 
Fremantle Dockers, purple jersey. <laughs> Melbourne Storm, purple jersey. <laughs> ah, that's clever. That clever stuff. Clever. Well, what do uh, you think? Yes, I mean, absolutely. They are related. Both glue no. and gluten go back to gluten, which is the Latin for glue. You'll find it in a glutinate as well, because gluten is a mixture of two proteins that you find in cereal grains, especially wheat, and they're responsible for the elastic, slightly gluey texture of dough. Oh. Simple as that. Simple as that, but you'd never think it. Completely no. brilliant. Well, Thanks I mean, this, this is why we are so grateful. Thank you very much indeed, Graham Marshall, for getting in touch. And for all everybody who from around the world does get in touch, you can get in touch with us. It's purple at somethingelse.com. And you can actually meet us too, because we're doing uh, some live podcasts on stage. And I think our next show is on the 20th of November at London's Fortune Theatre, wherever you are. Come and see us. Each show is different from the last show or the next show. And we just love meeting the purple people. For tickets and info, go to something rhymes with purple.com. Something rhymes with purple.com or follow us on social media at something rhymes on Twitter and Facebook or something rhymes with on Instagram. That's quite a lot of things to remember, isn't it? Uh, there are. And then now I've got my trio, which is more stuff to remember. I should just say quite often they are not always sort of very trippy off the tongue. So if you're struggling with any of the spellings in my trio, you can always find them in the program description blurb of each episode. Um, and you'll also find the title and author of Giles's poem. So three quick ones for you today, Giles. One is, you know, I love these old markers of time like yesterday for yesterday um, evening and overmorrow for the day after tomorrow. Here's another one. Eft soons. Eft soons just means very soon after. Eft and how do you spell eft soons? E-F-T-S-O-O-N-S. And is it one word? Eft soons? Yeah, eft soons, which is just beautiful, I think. My second one, palcrinny. Now, Ooh. you won't recognise this one. Pal, as in my pal, Giles. And then crinny, C-H-R-O-N-Y. Now, this is a neologism, and it's from my friend Tom Reed Wilson, who's written lovely books, especially for children about etymology. And he created this word to mean being in wonderful synchrony with a friend. Palcrinny. Oh, that's Just nice. That's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And the when you're on the same wavelength. Palcrinny. Exactly. The third one is probably... Something that many of us felt, I think, once lockdown ended, uh, because we were so used to our four walls and then suddenly we were allowed to go out. I should have mentioned it at the time, really, but I came across it the other day. Eleutherophobia is a fear of freedom. And that's E-L-E-U-T-H-E-R-O phobia. Eleutherophobia, a fear of freedom. That's interesting. I've been to a beautiful island called Eleuthera. Oh. It's in the Bahamas. And it must be called Eleuthera because Eleuthera means freedom. I had no lovely? idea when I That's was there. Gorgeous. It's if it wasn't so far away, I'd want to. Go, I'd fly there this afternoon. Oh, I'll come it, was, it, it rivals Blackpool in what it has <laughs> to offer. It's fantastic. Perfect. Perfect. Oh. Take some candy canes with you. Right. What about your poem? It's a short poem, and it had a kind of. Well, I felt it was appropriate given we've been talking about sweets with interesting and amusing names. This is a very short poem, just four lines, written by my friend David Walser. He's a neighbour of mine in southwest London, in Barnes, where I live. He was the lifelong partner of Jan Pinkowski, another marvellous artist who created the Meg, Mog and Owl books with uh, Helen Nickel. Do you remember those lovely yes, books? Yes, yes. Anyway, David Walser is an artist, a ceramicist and a poet. And this is a, a four-line nonsense verse that I felt was apt to share with you today. When making a jus, 
in your newly bought blender. A sip is quite hopeless. You must have a snurple. Did you add beetroot? Then the snurple is purple. And a snurple that's purple is fit for a turple. Enjoy. <laughs> I feel like jujube should have been in that poem somewhere. It could have been, couldn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. I in think he meant a jus, jus, J-U-S, which yes. people now call, they you know, get served lunch and they say it comes with a jus. Exactly. Uh, I mean, like really. a foam. Oh, God, pretentious um, tosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, we hope you haven't found us pretentious tosh. And if you have loved the show, please keep following us and subscribe and do recommend us to friends and family. And for more Purple, why not consider the Purple Plus Club ad-free listening and bonus episodes on words and language. Something Rhymes with Purple is a something else and Sony Music Entertainment production produced by Harriet Wells with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, Teddy Riley and uh, I don't really know what to say about him really. When he's a walking jujube. <laughs> we haven't seen him since 1864. It's Gully! <laughs>